you join me and open your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we're actually going to look at the last verse in chapter 7 and go through the 11th verse in John chapter 8. Now, I've already been asked by several people, you do know there's a potluck after this, right? (laughs) So I said yes, I've already cut my sermon down from three hours to one and a half, okay? So we're good. So before we get started, let me take care of two elephants that are in the room. There's one walking around over there, there's one walking around over there. Yes, the kids are looking for elephants now. Some of the adults too. So the first elephant in the room is, in some of your Bibles, you will see this has a footnote, this passage does, or it's in brackets from 753 through 811. And it's because that some Greek manuscripts don't have this passage in them. Some don't have it in any of the scriptures. Some do. Sometimes it's in John. Sometimes it's in Luke. If it's in John, it's in four different locations in John. It's either at the end of chapter 7, like we see here in our Bibles, or it's in the middle, or it's some other location in chapter 7. But for 1,500 years plus, this passage has been in our Bibles, right? And without getting into textual criticism and modern philosophies and discussions like that, because you all don't want to lecture tonight on that, um, say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Um, We're going to accept that the Holy Spirit superintended the collection of the canon of Scripture that we have before us. And so I'm going to preach this passage, believing that the Holy Spirit for 1,500 plus years (laughs) has superintended the collection of the Bible that we are using as God's Word with us today. Um, I will tell you that this, there's evidence that this passage is true, it's accurate, it was in the first century uh, when Jesus was alive, and we can have a cup of coffee and discuss that later on, okay? So that's the first elephant. Second elephant is this passage has been hijacked by so many people to come up with all sorts of different philosophies, philosophy, philosophies if I can say it, about how Jesus understood adultery and the sin of adultery. And um, we're not going to go all those ramifications because this passage is really not about adultery. It's about sin in general. Adultery just happens to be the context. Uh, This passage really has to be do with sin and grace and mercy. And we're going to see that as we walk through the passage. So now we've let the two elephants out of the room. We're going to go ahead and start. How many of you have had electronic documents or or even uh, devices that have just failed to work? It could be your phone. Last week it was our refrigerator. Um, maybe it's your computer. Maybe it's a PDF document you can't open. And what do you have to do? They always say what? If you call to help, help people. If you get somebody on the line, they say what? Kick it? I, I like that one. <laughs> no, they say what? Did you hit the reset button yet? Okay, have you reset the button? Have you hit that one? So we did that on our refrigerator. We unplugged it. That has a hard reset. We unplugged it, counted to 30, and plugged it back in, and the computer board came all up again and reset the refrigerator, and everything was fine. We'll see if it lasts. But right now, it's holding. Um, And you've had to do that with your phones, right? You had to do a hard or soft reset on your phones if things are not working right. Well, tonight, Jesus is going to ask us to do a reset. I call this, the title of the sermon is The Great Reset. Go and sin no more. The Great Reset. Go and sin no more. 
And the big idea that I want us to leave with tonight is that the purpose of Jesus' first advent, his first coming to earth, was to save and not condemn us. The purpose of Jesus' first advent was to save and not condemn. So let's recall where we've been. Jesus has been in opposition with people since chapter 5, where he healed the lame man on the Sabbath. Ever since then, there's been constant opposition against Jesus. He's been opposed by uh, the people there around the Pool of Siloam. He's been opposed by people and disciples who rejected him. He's been opposed by religious leaders. He's been opposed even by his own family. He's been opposed in the very temple itself. And tonight, guess what? He's going to continue to be opposed. So let's read our passage. I'm going to start in verse 53 of chapter 7 and go through verse 11 of chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May God bless the reading of his word. First thing we're going to see in the first verses here up to verse 6 is that accusers, the religious leaders, are ready to heave rocks of condemnation. They are ready to heave rocks of condemnation. So as we walk through this, you see in verse 53 that they had just finished the eighth day, right, of the Feast of Booze, and now everybody's gone to their own house. Uh, People are dispersing. Everybody who's traveled, they're starting to go to their own homes and trying to disperse. But Jesus, he didn't go back up to Capernaum. He went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem, so there's the east gate, there's the Valley of Kidron, and then there's the Mount of Olives, right, to the east. And a lot happens in the Mount of Olives, right? We know a lot of history in the Bible that occurred at the Mount of Olives. This is the place where uh, David wept in defeat when his son Absalom took over in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus is going to be betrayed and rejected. This is also where he ascends to heaven in Acts. And this will be the place when Jesus comes back in triumph his second time. So we know the exact location where Jesus will come. And it tells us in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half shall be south, southward. So we know when, where Jesus will come back. We just don't know when, right? Only God the Father knows the timing of Jesus' second coming. But we know the location. 
And would you also know, in 1964, what did they discover for the first time? There's actually a fault line right through the middle of the Mount of Olives, (laughs) going from east to west. So when Jesus comes back, he's going to land on that fault line, and it's going to separate the mountain in two. This is, what, this is where Jesus is going to be in this Mount of Olives. He's going there to rest. He's going there to sleep. Kids, you'd love it. He's going to camp out. I know my kids would put hammocks up on the olive trees, and they would go and camp out there. The next day, early in the morning, in verse 2, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus is in the outer court. Um, how do I know he's in outer court? Because a woman's going to become presentable for him. So he's out there in the outer court where women can be. Um, this is where all the people are mingling around. Um, remember, this is still a time where people are still in Jerusalem. It's crowded. People are walking around, talking, doing things. And so it's a crowded place. And he's out there teaching. People were curious still. They want to know, what does this Jesus have to say? And then guess who shows up? Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, and, but they don't come alone. They bring a woman who's been caught in adultery and set her before him and ask him basically, what should we do? Should we stone her like the law says or not? Now, right away, something seems a little fishy here with this story, right? Because where's the man, <laughs> right? The law says they're supposed to bring both parties forward. They only have one half the party. And also, when you bring somebody to accuse them, you have to have somebody who has witnessed the sin. So where's the witness? Were they actually watching individuals coming together? Or perhaps did they orchestrate it? it the, the story's not quite right. Of course, we know their intent was not purity and justice. It says they were trying to catch just Jesus, right? They're trying to trick him and trap him. That's their motivation. You know, before they tried to debate him in scripture, and they could not. They could not catch Jesus in a scripture problem. They couldn't even catch him up in where he came from. People are still coming to him and learning from him. So they're trying to come to entrap him. And they ask him, what should we do about this woman? Now, if he recommended that they be, she be released, then he's breaking the law of Moses. So Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with a wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And Deuteronomy 22.22 says the same thing, and they are to be stoned. So you would take them outside the city and stone them both. Of course, we only have half the party here, right? So if he says, let her go, then he's breaking the law of Moses, and then they have him. If he says, well, then we, we, need, to, we need to stone her then he would be breaking Roman law and they could then submit him to the, to the government officials causing insurrection and because only Romans could kill somebody at this time by law. The Jewish believers, the Jewish leaders could not. So the Pharisees were being a little clever here, right? They, they set a good trap, but they forgot who they were talking to, right? They were the law experts, but they forgot Jesus, as son of God, wrote the law, Right? So this is, this is a tense situation, right? You have these, all these Pharisees around in the outer court. There's people all around watching. You have this poor woman being shamed in front of everybody, and, and here's Jesus. And it could go either way, right? And what does Jesus do? He says nothing. 
he stoops down and starts doodling in the dirt. Now, don't you know that these proud, arrogant religious leaders were flustered to no end? They used to have power, right? They're used to people doing their beck and call. If they said move, they'll say, well, how, how long do you want me to move? You know, they, they, would just, they had all the power. They didn't expect anybody to not answer their question. And Jesus just stoops down away from them and starts doodling. He is showing us what meekness is, power under control. Jesus had the strength, right, to just take care of them, right? Either with his words, his power, but he doesn't. He's strength under control. He stoops down, and I also think he's stooping down to relate to who? The woman, right? She's probably on the ground right now, full of shame, and Jesus is bending down to her level, away from the religious leaders, and just starts doodling. Now, I wish I could tell you what he was writing. I have no idea. (laughs) There have been books and chapters and theses and everything written about what Jesus wrote in the sand. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. All it says is that he wrote in the ground. And the Greek word there means either write or doodling a picture. So I don't know what Jesus was writing. Um, And I'm not going to speculate because that's dangerous when it comes to God's word, right? We don't want to speak something that's not there. So they were ready to heave rocks at Jesus. And he's ignoring them. He's re- they're ready to condemn him and the woman. And then Jesus is going to turn the tables on them, starting in verse 7 through 10. Here, the accusers are caught between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus is going to put them there. In verse 7, what happens? And they continue to ask him. They're just peppering. Are you going to answer this question, Jesus? We've asked you this. Aren't you going to, oh, wise rabbi, the people are listening to you. Aren't you going to answer us? And Jesus finally what? He stands up and finally says a word. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just bends down again and starts writing again in, in the dust, in the dirt. Jesus answered flawlessly, threaded an evil, threaded the needle between the Roman law and the Jewish law. He preserves both of them with his answer. And at the same time, uncovers the evil intentions of the accusers. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, I'm just going to paraphrase for you, basically says you have to have two or three witnesses there present before you can do capital punishment. And those witnesses have to be the ones who first cast the first stone. The witnesses do, not anybody else. And after the witnesses cast the stone, then the people can follow and help casting the stone and and executing someone. So what Jesus is saying here to them, because he knows the law and they know the law, he's saying, we may execute her. It's okay if we go ahead, but we must do it correctly. So one of the witnesses must begin the execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed this crime? And who is the one who just brought me the woman and not the man? Who designed this humiliation of this poor woman? That's what Jesus is asking. Where are the witnesses? Is it one of you? Or did you just make this up, trying to shame this woman? The accusers become the accused. Jesus flipped the tables on them. If they go ahead and pick up a stone and stone her, then they break the law because they have not brought the witnesses. If they leave, then they're going to admit their own guilt. They're between a rock and a hard place. What are they to do? 
They have a choice to make. So instead of passing a sentence on this woman, Jesus passes a sentence on to the accusers. He didn't say don't execute her. He just simply demanded that justice be fairly and righteously applied. And they could not do it. So bending down, he begins to write again. Now, there's a different word for write. This time, the Greek word means he's writing a list or recording something. Still, I don't know what he wrote, right? I don't know if he wrote the sins of the men that were before him or not. I don't know. It just means he wrote a list or recorded something in the sand. But what I do know, the scripture tells us, one by one, the Pharisees, the scribes, they leave from the oldest to the youngest, This is the one time they actually do something right, right? They had just enough of goodness in them, right? They realize, oh, I can't cast the first stone. See, their sin was greater than this lady's because they were full of deceit. And they realize that. Those who came with the shameful intents to take Jesus and use the shamed woman left shamed on their own actions. They came to shame this woman and condemn Jesus, but they left shamed and condemned by Jesus. He completely flipped it by just one sentence and his actions. It comes to mind Matthew 7, right? If you have a, if you're looking at a speck, somebody else's sin, right? Take the board or the log out of your own eye first. That's what the Pharisees had to do, right? And they couldn't do it, so they left one by one. So we saw the accusers were ready to heave rocks of condemnation. They came, and they're caught between a rock and a hard place, and now what's going to happen? We're going to see Christ the rock is ready to heave something, but he's going to heave mercy and grace to this woman, and i.e. to us. In verse 10, Jesus stood up. Remember, he was riding on the ground. He stood up and said to the woman, where are they? They're all gone, right? It's just him and her and all the audience watching in the temple grounds. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And for the first time, she speaks. And she says, no one, Lord. This is the Lord title, like sir, recognizing him as a esteemed rabbi, not L-O-R-D, not the son of God. So she's recognizing him as a wise rabbi, and she says, no one has. And he, Jesus addresses her respectfully and says, then neither do I condemn you. Hmm. There's words of grace and truth, right? He forgives her. He says, go now, you're forgiven, go now and sin no more. Walk in newness of life. See, Jesus didn't say she didn't sin. He knew she did, right? He said, just go sin no more. I'm not going to condemn you. It's a wonderful thing for us, right? God has forgiven us. We are not condemned when we have faith in Jesus Christ. He has paid our penalty. We are to go and sin no more and walk in a life of newness. We've talked about grace and mercy before. Mercy, right? remember, is holding something back that we deserve. So Jesus is holding back this execution by stoning from this woman. He's giving her mercy. 
And then he's giving her grace. He's giving her something she does not deserve. She doesn't deserve forgiveness, right? Because she has sinned, but he's giving that to her. And he's giving her the hope of new life. So he's showing her mercy and grace. Not condemning her. Church, that's what God did for us through his son, Jesus. The great resets. Go and sin no more, he's telling this woman. See, Jesus came not to condemn this first time, but to save. The second time he's coming, he's coming as judge. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ do not fear that because we've been exonerated. We've been reconciled in relationship to God. We have eternity with him. And this, is, this passage is short, right? Short little verses. But it tells us what God wants us to do in our life. He wants us to reset our life and focus on him. Reset to what? So when you reset your devices, what are you re- re- resetting it to? To the factory settings, right? What does God want us to do? Reset our lives to factory settings, the way it was at the beginning of the Garden of Eden. That we're abiding with God, walking with God daily. Right relationship with him. All this before the curse. That's the factory reset that God wants us to do. So I have a couple of applications from this passage that God has been wrestling with me this week. And so I'm going to share with you. The first one is... Living Hope Brian is called to provide a culture and a context where all people can start again. Living Hope Brian is called to provide a culture and a context where all people can start again. So what I want to do is unpack the sentence. We're starting at the beginning and then go to the end, then I'll fill in the middle. First, Living Hope Brian. What, is, what do I mean by that? This is the assembly of the people, right? Us. It's not a place whether we meet on Beeson Street or here or God moves us somewhere else, that's not the church. The church is us, the people, the body of believers. So he has called us to something, right? That's what I mean by Living Hope Brian. If I can borrow from the Constitution, we the people of Living Hope Brian, that's who's he called, right? Okay, that is the church. The verbal phrase is called. We have a purpose. We're not we're to be active doing something, not passive. And it's in the present tense on purpose. Because we are called to be in the present, not in the past. Yes, this church started about 15 years ago with about 200 people from a parent church. And now we are approximately 100 people strong that are faithfully and solidly invested in this body of this church. Praise the Lord. And we are focused on the is, not the past. We are focused on our exciting present and our future vision, not mired in the past of woulda, coulda, shoulda. And we are, and I see that in you. And I praise God for that. Now let's look at the middle phrase. To provide a culture context where all people can start again. Let's look at all people start again. See, God is in the renewal and transformation business with us. God sent his son to the world to save us from the condemnation we rightly deserve. 
We have all sinned, God has told us, and we deserve death. But John 3.17, we know John 3.16, but John 3.17 is equally important. Don't miss it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he, the world might be saved through him. Amen? Yes, we know John 3.16. Don't forget John 3.17. We are not condemned because of our life through Jesus Christ. And this truth has been perfectly illustrated through this lady. We don't know her name, but she's a perfect illustration that God, Jesus, sent Jesus there at that time to not condemn her, but to save her. See, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, every one of us, including me. And all sins, no matter how, quote, big and small, we tend to rank them, right? But all sin is sin to a holy God. There's no ranking with him. Okay, we're either not sinning or sinning, right? To a holy God, it's all the same. I've heard the phrase, and many of you have as well in the past, that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, right? So, and it's controversial who came of it. Some people say St. Augustine said it. Some people said Dear Abby said it. And so the camps are equal. I don't know who said it, but I've heard it, right? The church is a hospital. And I've thought about that this week. And I disagree with it for the following reasons. We are not a hospital for sinners because of the following. This phrase gets, gets abused, I think, by people who think of sin as an illness and not a personal guilt or an offense towards God. It's not an illness, right? It's an offense towards God. Second, this phrase dilutes the depravity of our sins into just maybe little mistakes or temporary boo-boos or poor decisions. It's more than that. Yes, we are depraved. We have hearts of sin. And third, the phrase gives the false impression that the church is the place where people get fixed and bandaged and proved your best life now. That's not what the church is for. The church doesn't do those things. God does. The Holy Spirit does, right? And so I don't think we're a church or not a hospital for sinners. I actually think we're a morgue for the dead, but it's a strange morgue, right? We come in dead and we leave alive. Now let me read this from Pastor Joel Hess said, Jesus did not come to fix the world or us. We are not simply sick or broken. We are dead. Scripture tells us that. We are dead, right? Outside of Christ. We also are not simply victims. We are the enemy. The evil dead only wanting to rebel against our maker. Jesus did not come to fix us. He came to kill us and raise us up. Just as he died and rose, he came to raise the dead. He came to smash us apart and make us new. We are dead and buried with Christ, right? And then we made alive new and resurrected life. That's what we are. We walk in here dead and leave alive. So we're not a hospital where God fixes us, right? He transforms us. He brings us back to life. We just read that in Romans 6 in the prep verse, right? We were dead to sin. We're alive to God. That's what those verses said. And we sang that in the song as well. We're dead to God. We know we're alive to, with him because of what Jesus did. So I was dead and now I'm alive. Gone is the me that struggled with severe raging anger that gave Hulk a run for his money. And I'm not using hyperbole. Um, gone is the me that struggled with rebellion against authority. Gone is the me that struggled with pride and perfectionism. My heart has been transformed. I had a triple bypass. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? I have been transformed. Praise the Lord. And you have you, if you've asked Jesus, hear your heart as, his Lord, as your Lord and Savior. Right? You have been transformed. So this is what it means to start again. I have a new life. I am starting again. I am transformed. I am renewed towards God. As he intended at the first of creation before the fall. My factory reset. Right? I will not fully see my factory reset until eternity, but I'm on the process of being reset fully in this process of sanctification. And now the middle part, to provide a culture and a context where all people. You see, I think sometimes we can be as spiritually arrogant as the scribes and Pharisees. I know I can. So I'm going to, I wrote down a list of phrases I've heard Heartbreaking comments from churches in the past, not from this church, as I've been growing up. So there's six of them. Who said they could come in and join us? That color of people doesn't belong in church. Do you know what he did? I don't want to sit next to him. Can you believe what she is wearing? We don't want that kind in our church. This church does not do outreach to that economic class of people. Pastor, I'm afraid I'll catch something if that type of person comes to our service. Can I catch that sin? That person does not talk like me, dress like me, or smell like me, so why should I be expected to minister to them? These are phrases I have heard growing up. Children in the room, listen to me. I want to be crystal clear. These comments are wrong. They are not showing the love of God. But we can find ourselves reacting judgmentally, right? We can be self-righteous sometimes, pointing out other people's sins, the the speck, and not looking at the log in our own eyes. None of us, none of us in this room have the right to pick up a stone, right? We're like the Pharisees. None of us have that right to pick it up. May we have Luke chapter 6, verse 36, emblazing on our hearts. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. That should be our motto, right? That should be the context here. See, God wishes to reconcile the world to himself. And as believers, as Christians, we have that mandate. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And you say, well, is there scripture to back that up? Yes, there is. I'm glad you asked. So 2 Corinthians 5.18 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and here's the second part, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, have this ministry of reconciliation. Not ostracizing people, not pushing people away, reconciling with them with God. Remember, we are a holy priesthood, right? What do the priests do? They represent the people to God. That's what we are supposed to do. So all are welcome in our service, right? Both unbelievers and believers, both saints and sinners, all are welcome here to hear about the spirit and truth. Those struggling with addictions to alcohol, drugs, pornography, or even struggling with addictions to themselves, they're welcome here to hear the truth of God. Practicing LGBTQ individuals, those practicing adultery, premarital sex, they're welcome to sit in the pew and hear the word of God. 
those practicing transgenderism, they're welcome to sit here and hear the word of God. There's other sins that I won't say because there's little ears in the room, but they're welcome to be here to hear the word of God, hear the spirit and truth. All races and ethnic groups, all socioeconomic groups are welcome here. It may or will make you feel uncomfortable sometimes to sit next to someone not like you. But remember these three things. We are all made in the image of God. We all need to be confronted with the spirit and truth. Every one of us. We are all sinners in need of a savior. Now hear me clearly. This does not mean we throw open the chicken coop and let the fox in. Right? So I want to be clear. It would be unwise and biblically irresponsible for the elder team to knowingly place someone who is actively practicing any sin into a service, teaching, or leadership role. Okay, so we're not going to do that. That doesn't mean somebody can't sit here and hear the word of God. And sometimes sins have long-term consequences that require godly wisdom to navigate. Okay? So for instance, if Judas Iscariot walked in here and sat down and said he wanted to be chair of the finance committee, I'd probably say no, <laughs> knowing that his long, he, he has a problem with money and greed, right, and being a thief. Okay, he's actively practicing that sin. I would say no, okay? Other than that, we welcome people here to hear the word of God, right? Living Hope Brian is called to provide a culture and a context where all people can start again. Jesus went to the homes of sinners, and he went to the temple, he went to the unchurched and the churched. May we do the same, sharing the gospel message. Second application. I encourage you to walk in newness of life. That's what he told the woman, right? Go and sin no more. Go walk in newness of life. That's what Jesus told the lame man too, remember? And pulled Bethesda. After healing him, he said, stop walking in sin and go. These two women, I mean, this woman, this woman, and this man, Jesus told them the same thing. He forgives them, heals them physically and spiritually, and says, go sin no more. Go walk in newness of life. You think Jesus is trying to tell us something? Yes. Spiritual renewal, transformation right? Yes, we're going to go have a potluck in a minute, but the spiritual food we're eating is what's important right now, right? For renewal. Jesus came to not condemn us, but to save us. He sacrificed himself on the cross for my sin and your sin, and he died, right? He died to pay the penalty of that sin. He stopped breathing, his, start, his heart stopped beating, his blood stopped flowing, his brain activity ceased. He died. But God, I love those words, but God resurrected Jesus from the dead for you and for me. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, those titles do not expire, right? They're not good just for three months or for one year. Okay, we just got Metronet the other day, so we've got a deal for two years, okay? After 24 months, I don't know what's gonna happen. That doesn't happen with Jesus. He's gonna be Lord and Savior forever in your life. Does not expire. This means we are not shackled to sin any longer. 
or the guilt of sin any longer. You are saved. We are transformed in new creation. Our verse for this month is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 4.24 says the same thing. We are a new creation. We are to walk in newness of life. This is what Jesus is telling this condemned, seemingly condemned woman, right? I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Go walk in your newness of life. He gave her hope. So I have a couple of questions. One, are you still shackled by continuing to sin? Jesus says, go and sin no more. But you say, I know, you don't understand, Pastor Charles. It's hard to resist temptations. I would say to you, it's not hard to resist temptations. I would say it's impossible by yourself. See, David, man after God's own heart, could not resist sexual temptation. Samson, strongest man, could not resist sexual temptation. Solomon, the wisest man, could not resist sexual temptation. What makes us think we can resist sin in our lives as well? We can't. But God has given us three things to help us, our own Trinitarian response, if you will. One, his word. How did Jesus react to Satan's temptation? What did he quote? God's word. This is your sword, your offensive weapon in the armor of God. Study it, use it. Second, his spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk out this newness of life that we have been given. And third, the church. We provide accountability and truth and love. We come alongside each other. That's one of our roles. With these three things, you can resist temptation. Romans 6, 11 through 14. We just read it at the beginning. We are no longer condemned, right? We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Sin has no dominion over us, but we let it. Perhaps you're not shackled to, to continuing sin, but you are dragging along the weight of grief over past sins. Guilt is intended. God gave us a feeling of guilt. He made us that way, but it's intended to drive us to repentance, not anchor us to hopelessness. That's the proper purpose of guilt. Don't let it anchor you to hopelessness. Let it drive you to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Romans 8.1 says we are no longer condemned if you're saved in Jesus Christ. So let it go. Let that grief go. This adulterous woman was dragged to Jesus, possessing shame, a sinful past, ridicule from the church leaders, and ostracized in front of everybody in the temple court. Jesus did not tell her, go throw a pity party, never forget your shame and sin for your good, you good-for-nothing woman. He didn't say that at all. What did he say? He had compassion and gave a hopeless woman hope and renewal. Let him do the same for you. Repent, yes, but then let go of the guilt and walk in the newness of life that God has for you. 
as the worship team comes up, it's time to do a great reset, to go and sin no more. After I pray, I'm going to stand down here in case anybody needs prayer or wants to confess anything or make a, tell me about a decision or whatever it may be. I'll stand up here a few, few minutes. But perhaps you're a believer and you're not abiding with Christ as you should. Reset your life now and spend time in the word and in prayer and obey. Perhaps you're a believer, but you're caught in the snares of sin. Whatever it may be, reset your life. Repent and reconcile with God. Go and sin no more. Perhaps you're here and you have yet to rescind your life, surrender your life to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. I would say reset your life now for eternity. Do that tonight. Perhaps you're here and God's calling you to a church, but you haven't, you've resisted that. Reset your life now. You need a loving body who can come around you, show you and love you and help you grow spiritually and help you be able to serve and be on mission for God. Now, I know there's people around you. Right now, I just want you in your mind, ignore everybody around you. Imagine Jesus is stooping down, riding on the dust on the floor. He rises up and he's looking straight at you. He says, neither do I condemn you. Reset your life with me. He's here asking that now. As the worship team plays, you respond to Jesus asking you that question. 